It's great to see you today. Thanks for being here or checking us out online. We are in week two of our series called Shadows, which talks about how Jesus overshadows the entire Bible. In fact, he goes before creation until the end of time and then beyond that into eternity, both directions. And uh, it's an exciting time for us to just look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and how Jesus just fits into so many stories. One of the things, though, I think can be a little bit confusing, as you read through the Old Testament, especially if you've never done it before, like your first journey through it, you're like, what is going on? This is like really weird. It seems random and strange and like this journey is going in all these different places and it doesn't seem like what I would have expected it to look like. And it sort of reminds me of the display on my car. Like, check this out. That is pretty cool. <laughs> it makes it a little bit challenging sometimes to know what radio station I'm on or whatever. But uh, fortunately, it's intermittent. But I recorded that because I was like, oh, this is just crazy how this works. And I think um, <clears throat> that's a good illustration, though. It just, again, feels sort of like there's this chaos going on all the time. But here's the thing. God knows exactly what's going on. He's directing the story. He is the one who is tying it all together. And today as we look from moving from Adam and Eve up to the time of Noah, we see how Jesus, again, fits into this story and, again, how it affects our lives as well. So we're going to start off um, in the book of Genesis, if you want to go there. And we're going to be starting in chapter 6, and we'll get there in just a minute. Just to basically summarize chapters 6 through 9, there's a lot there, and I encourage you to read it. But basically, over time, the descendants of Adam, of Adam and Eve have just continued um, to populate the earth, but they've also continued to overstep the boundaries that God put in place. Things that will be beneficial for them. And this relationship with God is broken, the relationship with people is broken, the relationship with creation is broken. And wherever God looks... He sees people whose hearts are completely pursuing things that are just bad. I mean, the Bible says they're pursuing evil stuff. But there is one person who is different, and his name is Noah. Noah is the son of, or the grandson of Methuselah. Methuselah was an old dude. He lived to be 969 years old, and he died in the year of the flood. Now, I don't know how old you are, but man, 969 is pushing it, right? Man. But Noah um, was, was a recipient of an, a message from God. And God said, Noah, you're going to experience something like no one before has ever experienced, like no one will ever experience again in the same way. And it's this thing called rain. Now, we've had some rain in this past week, right? I mean, honestly, it was kind of funny. I was like, hey, that's cool, God, how you're making this illustration because rain's coming up, you know, in the, in the sermon on Sunday. I'm sure that's why we got all that rain. But um, the, uh, the thing that was, is interesting, the thing to note here is that, again, this is just massive amounts of rain. Massive. Now, what's, if you were going to have somebody, like, build a boat, who would you get? Like, a, a shipbuilder, right? So God chooses... Noah, who happens to be a farmer. 
Now, farmers, honestly, I have tons of respect for farmers because they can do all kinds of stuff. It seems like they're the jack-of-all-trades kind of person. They can do everything. Maybe that's why God picked him, but mostly I think it was because God saw his heart. But anyway, God, as he sometimes does in your life and mine, he will take you outside of your experience, outside of your comfort zone, and he said, I know you've been doing this. This is what I want you to do. And he tells them to build this huge mammoth ship not in the middle of like this region with this huge amount of lakes and water. No, he's just like in the middle of dry land. Build this huge boat, and you can read the specifications for it in there, in the Word. And he says, I want you also to, to have two of every animal, a male and a female, and also seven pairs of clean animals, and I want you to put them all into the ark. And take your wife, your three sons, their wives, and get into the ark as well. And by the way, you're going to be in there for a long time, so you're going to need a lot of food. So he had to get food for his whole family and for all these animals for this really long period of time. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder what it smelled like in the ark. You know, it must have smelled really good. Our son played hockey, and to be honest, I thought that was probably the most disgusting thing I've ever smelled, is like a hockey locker room. And if you're a hockey player, you know what I'm talking about. There is just something nasty about it, and it's constrained. You can't, like, get it out of your clothes or anything. It's just there forever. It had nothing to do with it. But I just wanted to let you know, if you want to know what the ark smelled like, go to a, a locker room, a, a hockey locker room. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And again, his neighbors must have thought, man, this guy is crazy. Why is he building this huge boat? And Noah talked to them. Noah warned them, and everybody completely ignored his message. Well, Noah and his family finally enter the ark, and this massive rain falls for 40 days and nights, and, and the water floods up from the bottom underneath the earth, and they're in there for 150 days with this water, just everywhere. And the water begins to recede, Eventually, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Noah and his family have been there for almost eight months. They're waiting for the surface of the water to dry. And then finally, after just a little bit over a year, God invites Noah to come out. And Noah makes an altar. He makes sacrifices to God to give thanks to what God, for, for God delivering his family. And God's pleased with Noah's offerings. And then God makes an offering himself, a covenant with Noah. He says, never again am I going to destroy the earth by flood. And then he puts a rainbow in the sky as a reminder. Now, we often think of this story as like a children's Bible story, right? We get out this little boat and we put these little animals in it. You know, and it's cool to do that, nothing wrong with that. But there's a, this is really a story of what happens when we ignore God's plan. When we go outside of what God has said is beneficial to us. It always ends in suffering, destruction, and death. There is so much packed in this, but today we're just going to look at, at three words and a kind of a thread that runs between them, and those three words are favor, obedience, and promise. And we're going to start with Noah. Noah and the word favor. In chapter 6, verse 8 of Genesis, it says this. 
Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor. Again, God's looking around. He's seeing everybody with all these just intentions of evil. But Noah found favor or found grace. It's the same word, same idea. Now, I was thinking about it. Why did Noah find favor with God? And then it hit me yesterday at about noon. He was obviously a Buckeyes fan, and God had favor on him. No, maybe not. But maybe it was because his favorite color was green. I mean, God obviously likes green. You look outside, there's a lot of green. It also could be that Noah was a fan of Skyline Chili. I'm just saying, it could have been that. Or maybe it was because Noah aligned his political views with just the right party or person. Maybe that's what it was. I know what it was. When Noah took his Enneagram, God was impressed with the results. That's what it was. Some of you are like, what's an Enneagram? Look it up. Maybe God favored Noah because Noah was perfect. Right? I mean, if if Noah's perfect, then God's certainly going to pour out his favor on him. Well, verses 9 through 12 show us Noah, no, he is not perfect, but he does pursue God's heart. It says that he walked with God, and that's what Adam and Eve did before they sinned. Noah just has a heart for God, and it's confirmed in verse 22, because it says this about Noah. Noah did this, so God gave him all of these instructions, and Noah said, absolutely, I'll do it. Noah did everything that God had commanded him. Noah was obedient. He obeyed God. I think he found favor with God because he looked for it. Now, obedience does not earn favor with God, but God does look favorably on hearts that are aligned with pursuing the right thing. And then God promises his grace for Noah, and for all of creation. And we see this, again, this is in verse, or chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. God is speaking, I will remember my covenant between me and you, that's Noah, and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. The rainbow says that God is not going to destroy earth by life, by flood again. But you know what the rainbow doesn't do is take care of the problem of sin. The problem that was introduced by Adam and Eve. In fact, if you go on reading immediately, as the earth becomes repopulated, people continue to pursue things outside of what is best for them, outside of God's plan. So eventually God creates a system of intricate laws and sacrifices that are going to hold off his punishment, but they don't eliminate it. They don't pay for it. They don't take care of the punishment that is due because of sin. 
And we saw briefly last week what will take care of that. In the story of Adam and Eve and after they sin, there's a promise that is made. It's kind of interesting, if you follow Jesus for a while, you're going to hear this phrase, Sunday school answer, right? So, like, you could be in a class and they would say, okay, what's fuzzy, has a a bushy tail, like a fuzzy little tail, has big long ears, likes to hop, always wants to have some carrots or some lettuce. What is that? And you're thinking, Man, that sounds like a bunny rabbit, but I'm in Sunday school, so it's got to be Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Well, in this case, the answer is Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. But don't think that it's not significant because it is. Jesus, favor, obedience, and promise. In Luke 2.52, it says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. And Luke is talking about Jesus when he's only 12 years old. He's in the temple. He's talking to the religious leaders about spiritual things. So whether you're closer in age to Noah or closer in age to Jesus at 12, understand that pursuing God's heart is always the right thing. Jesus definitely has God's favor and God's grace on him. And Jesus obeyed God the Father. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Jesus is motivated to obey God's plan and God's purpose, not because he's afraid of the consequences if he doesn't, Or because he wants to have some reward if he does, he says, I obey the Father because I love him. That's why I obey my dad. Love is the best motivator for obedience. It's the real, true motivator that God wants to see in us. And when we think about Jesus obeying, we're like, well, duh, he's Jesus. I mean, he's God in the flesh. Of course he's going to obey. Well, Jesus is God. But as he walked on the earth, he had every opportunity to choose the wrong thing. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, like all of us, and yet he never sinned. And it's because of that choice to never sin, because of his perfect life, that he is able to crush the head of the enemy that we saw last week, that promise. He is able to defeat our enemies of sin and death. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. So again, God overlooked but didn't have any way to take care of those sins that existed in Adam and Eve and all the way up till the time that Jesus died on the cross and all of the sins that would come afterwards. The only thing that would pay for all of those was Jesus. That's what atonement means. It means to pay for. That's what Jesus did. 
You know, last week we saw that Jesus is the second and better Adam. Well, Jesus is also like the better Noah. Noah obeyed God and and did what God asked. And Noah told the people around him of the, of the war, he warned them of the things that were coming. And Jesus does that as well. He, he obeys his father because of love. And he warns about the things that are coming. But he goes beyond. Jesus not only builds an ark, Jesus is the ark. Like he is the way that we enter into safety. He is the way that we can be saved from the, the things that are coming. And Jesus is also, like, he's a better rainbow. I mean, the promise of God is there in the sky, but now the promise of God is here on the earth, in the flesh. What's interesting about that word, as you saw when I read it out of the, um, this translation, it doesn't say rainbow officially. The word actually is just the word bow. And it can mean rainbow, absolutely. And it's properly stated as rainbow in this context because that's what it is. But the exact same word is also used for a bow, like a bow and arrow. And some commentators make an analogy that I think is pretty interesting. They talk about how the bow, the rainbow, curves in this direction, obviously from the earth to the sky. And there are physics reasons for that. But God is greater than physics. He could have made it bend the other way if he wanted to. But in that bending, there's a sense of direction. And when the arrow, if you will, is shot so that there is a payment, a a piercing, the arrow isn't shot from heaven to earth, the earth, or the arrow is shot from earth to heaven and it pierces God himself who dies for us. And I, I don't know, next time I see a rainbow, I'm going to think of that. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we then get to enter into this equation, into this story. We are favored because of Jesus. John 1.16 says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. The fullness of Jesus gives us grace upon grace, favor upon favor. Now, as Michael mentioned earlier, Christmas is coming. And one of the things I really enjoy is to sit around and watch people open Christmas gifts. It's really fun. And as you know, if you are the parent or the grandparent or the friend of a child who's receiving a gift, it's awesome just to watch them, isn't it? Just to watch them unwrap it and watch their eyes light up. And there's this, this idea here of grace upon grace reminds me of Christmas morning when you unwrap the presents and the way we do, we sit around in a circle and you just take turns and watch people unwrap and it just keeps going and going and going and going and that's probably not a good thing. Like we, we probably spend too much cash, you know, so we should be careful about that. But the point is that it's just like this amazing generosity, this amazing, amazing blessing and that's the idea here. That God gives us grace upon grace, favor upon favor, blessing upon blessing. It just keeps going and going and going if you're a follower of Jesus. 
It's like a fountain that never runs dry. It just keeps pouring out more and more. And when we understand that grace, when we understand what God has done for us, when we understand how much God loves us, then our response should be one of not just obedience out of obligation, but obedience out of love. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will keep my commands if you love me. Again, that's the right motivator. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, dog obedience school, when that happens, um, when it's doggy break time, you know, when they get their little break, the dogs are talking about the class. I don't know if you know that's true, but that is true. And there were these two dogs that were in obedience class. And uh, the one said to the other, you know, the thing I hate about this is we learn all this stuff in class that has absolutely no practical application in real life. That's funny. Until you realize that's what we say. Okay, there's stuff like this dude Noah built a boat. Cool, the earth flooded, whatever. God has these rules. God has this plan. By the way, the rules are summarized right there. Love God and love people. They're not hard. They're hard to implement. They're not hard to understand. But what does that have to do with our lives? Why is God's grace important? What does it even have to do with me? I think we need to understand, and I'm talking to myself, God doesn't give us his grace so we are able then to do whatever we want. God gives us his grace so that we're able to do whatever God wants. And when he does that, that's actually the best thing for us. And it's the best thing for the people who are around us. And God's grace, his, his favor is poured out in us and on us. And it's the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it, it talks about this, this story of Noah again. In Peter's writing, he says this, People in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few people, that is eight, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. So God makes a way for us to connect with the story of Noah, but way more importantly, to connect with the sacrifice, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We'll touch on that just a bit more in a minute, but, but these verses that Peter writes take us all the way back to that time of Noah, that time when the people are sitting around doing whatever they think they want to do, having no regard for the people around them or for their relationship with God, and they're just damaging creation, they're damaging everything. And I think the way that this applies to us can be summarized by two words. So the so what, maybe one application could be this. 
The first thing is the warning that Noah told the people around him is the warning that Jesus gives to us today. In Matthew 24, starting in verse 7, Jesus says, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. He's talking about himself. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't eat or drink or get married. He's saying you're ignoring all of the stuff that's coming and all you're focusing on is your day-to-day junk. You're just thinking about you. You're not thinking about the important stuff. Not that those things aren't important. Again, it's context. But Jesus said they didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. They had heard, but they didn't know. They didn't experience until it was too late. And he says, this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. People then ignored God's warning, and people today, we we can do that too. I know I can. Listen, Jesus will return. And the first time which we will celebrate next month, he came as a humble savior. But the next time he's coming as a conquering king. And you can be on victorious team Jesus, not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he's saying to you, listen, come and get into a relationship with me. God's grace is is huge. It's big enough for everyone who wants to enter into it. And we just did a series, God's grace is greater, right? And we said God's grace is, is greater than anything you've done or anything that's been done to you. And connecting with God's grace is how we move from this warning into winning. In Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should we just keep doing whatever we want so God's grace can just keep blowing up and getting bigger? And the answer is no, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. See, the flood and our baptism are related because Jesus ties them together. His death and burial and resurrection connects us. And our obedient response of saying yes to baptism or yes to belief or yes to confession or yes to continually walking with him is simply a step of faith. And it's part of moving into that ark, if you will, into that relationship with Jesus. And it's the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that save us and our faith placed in those things. And entering into that relationship means that you're in a new relationship with God and you are actually adopted into God's forever family because of God's grace. And as we close, I want to, it's, I just want you to hear this story um, by Daniel Montgomery in a book called Proof. He shares this. Our daughter had been previously adopted. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. 
After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. Whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in her mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But, no, but when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been left on the outside. Once I found out about this, I made plans to take her to Disney World. Now, I knew from previous experience that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the months leading up to our trip, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister deeply. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before we headed to Florida, I pulled out our daughter into my lap I know what you're going to do, she stated. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't crossed my mind. But her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family, I asked. She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behavior grew better. It didn't. Her choices spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all along the way. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. In our hotel room that evening, a different child emerged. She was exhausted and a little weepy at times, but her month-long rebellion faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of outrageous grace. Once you enter 
into a saving relationship with Jesus, again, into the ark, if you will, you become part of God's family. And yes, you'll probably still face some consequences on earth from being disobedient. But the promise of an eternal kingdom, infinitely better than Disney World, is yours. Not because you are good, but because you are God's. And if you've never entered into that relationship, today you can make that choice to do that. And Jordan's going to be up here up front. He'll, he'll talk with you. He'll pray with you. We'll get you started. If you're uncomfortable doing that right now, please find somebody this week and talk to them about it. And if you are in that relationship, would you remember to just rest in your Father's arms? And just be embraced by the God who says, it's not because you're good, it's because you're mine. And look for people around you who don't know that. And help them to begin that journey as well. Right now we're going to celebrate, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, we're going to pour out our hearts to our God who has poured out his love and blessings on us.